Well, as we begin this morning, I wanted to uh, let you know we are starting a whole new book, the book of Philippians, which for some of you I know you mentioned is your favorite book. Um, hopefully we'll be able to do it justice. The, uh, and also tonight at 6 o'clock, uh, I'm not going to spend much time going into the background of Phil- the whole book of Philippians. We're going to do that tonight like we've done with the other two books so far, Galatians and Ephesians. So, you know, we'll spend some time looking at the history of Philippi, why it was such an important town, and some of its characteristics that actually influenced how Paul put his letter, letter together. So we're going to do that tonight at 6. Uh, our local scholar, Randy Reed, will be leading that discussion. Um, and I want to also mention to you that the, we're, we're going through these uh, basics of Christian truth, Christian doctrine on Wednesday evenings, and that's still available uh, two more, well, until the 20. We've done three. We've got two more to go in this session, the first five. So this one's on creation, and our own Dr. Sonics will be facilitating that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, as I mentioned, Paul's letter to the Philippians is one of the more uh, popular books in the New Testament uh, because it's, always, it's so positive. It's always so hopeful and upbeat, um, at least if you look at it at the macro level. But Paul began his letter to the, if you remember back when we looked at the book of Galatians, Paul began his letter to the Galatians with, with a strong declaration of his authority as an apostle and no real thanksgiving for the recipients, as we see for obvious reasons. Ephesians began with kind of a short declaration of Paul's authority, a, a real terse greeting, and then a lengthy recounting of God's spiritual blessings. But starting this new church, our new letter from the, to the church at Philippi, you're going to see a whole different type of introduction, and there's a whole different tone as we get started. So let's begin by looking at those first 11 verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God at all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion of the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about y'all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the perfection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Simple, straightforward introduction, right? Let's just open in prayer. I thank you, Father, for just the chance to look into a, a, a book that we've, in most cases, found you know, very uplifting. There's verses in here that we've probably each memorized. Uh, I thank you, Father, that we have this chance to look into what you've given to us through the Apostle Paul. So help us, Father, to gain a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he expects of us and the joy that he provides, regardless of what our outer circumstances are. Paul had so many reasons to be down, to be discouraged, and yet he was joyful. And we can see that in this letter. So help us, Father, to glean 
what you want us to learn from this to be able to apply it to our lives, especially in the whole area of prayer for one another. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you need to get into your uh, Wayback Machine, and let's go back to the year A.D. 61. The Apostle Paul is in Rome because he appealed to Caesar to hear his defense against the charges that are made to him by the Jews in Jerusalem. He's under house arrest in Rome at this point. He's chained to a soldier of Caesar's Praetorian Guard 24-7. Now, house arrest was not familiar to most of us until this last year. Now we know what it's like to, to try to find a way to support ourselves without leaving our house while being chained to a Fauci mask 24-7. <laughs> but one day, Paul receives a special visitor. About 10 years previous, Paul had started a new church in the very, very Roman town of Philippi, which is now in northern Greece. Over the years, the church had consistently sent encouragement and support to Paul. And when the Philippian church heard about his imprisonment, they sent a much-loved leader of their own, a fellow named Epaphroditus, to Rome to help Paul, along with a monetary gift for Paul's personal needs, since he as a prisoner could no longer ply his trade. And while in Rome, Epaphroditus apparently became sick and almost died. And then when word got back to the Philippians, and they're only 800 miles away, when word got back to the Philippians, they were naturally very concerned. But miraculously, Paul says, Epaphroditus was restored to health. So Paul decides to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi because they need him more than Paul does. And because of the strong bond of affection between Paul and the church at Philippi, he decides to send them a friendly letter as well. So they won't think that Epaphroditus had failed in, their, in his attempt to help Paul. And that's the letter that we're going to be studying. So as he thinks of what to write, I imagine all sorts of memories came crowding into his mind. He shared a special bond with the Christians at Philippi since he led them to the Lord. Their friendship started in a strange way if you look in the book of Acts chapter 16. Paul and his companions had been on a missionary journey here. When they got to this point, they were going to go this way, and the Holy Spirit said, nope, and sent them over here to Troas, which is a seaport. And it was at Troas that he saw a vision, a vision of a man from Macedonia, which is Europe, across the way here, asking Paul, please come over and help us. So Paul and his companions caught the next ship to Macedonia and proceeded to Philippi, which is one of the leading cities in the whole province. Now, lots of interesting things happened to Paul and his companions in Philippi. Remember, first of all, they went to a women's Bible study at the river, and they baptized Lydia, who was a businesswoman who imported purple dye from her hometown. They also healed a slave girl from demon possession. And the girl's owners, who had exploited her condition for their gain, were furious, and they stirred up a mob against them. And they hauled Paul and Silas before the magistrates, the leaders of the city, and they beat them severely with rods, caning, and threw them into jail. Now, being beaten in a first-century Roman city was no picnic. They were probably beaten within an inch of their lives. And then they were thrown into the worst cell in the jail with their legs fastened in stocks. Can you imagine being fastened in stocks after having been beaten like that? They couldn't even move around to try to find a comfortable position if there's even one possible. 
And they assigned a jailer to keep watch over them, a jailer who was responsible then with his own life. But then Acts says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now that's the part that's kind of hard to believe. Can you even imagine that? Severely flogged, thrown into jail, fastened in stocks. They're singing hymns to God and to the other prisoners. And then God steps in. A violent earthquake shook the prison. It loosed everybody's chains, opened the doors. And so we can actually say that the gospel first entered Europe in a sacred concert that was so successful it brought the house down. <laughs> well, the jailer woke up, and he assumed that some of the prisoners had escaped and prepared to commit suicide. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all still here. And before the night was over, Paul had baptized the jailer and his entire family as they professed faith in Christ. So at daybreak, the magistrates release Paul and Silas, but not until Paul exacts an apology from them, since he is a Roman citizen. And what they did was totally illegal. And since they were so closely coupled to Rome, they considered themselves the second Rome, they knew they were in serious trouble if they'd actually done something unjust to a Roman citizen. So they apologized, and they kicked him out of town. So Paul visited, and Timothy, and whoever else was with him, Luke, probably stayed in Philippi. But they visited Lydia and the little fledging church, and they left for Thessalonica down the road. But the church grew, and the church, this church kept in touch with Paul. So Paul remembers in this book with thanksgiving and joy his brothers and sisters there in Philippi. I mean, over and over again, a matter of fact, a total of 16 times in only 104 verses, Paul uses the words joy or rejoice. He remembered with joy the women's Bible study that led to Lydia becoming a Christian and the beginning of the church. He remembers fondly that girl who was demon-possessed dog in their heels. He remembered the joy of the jailer who put his broken body in stocks without even washing his wounds. He remembered being chained in this really foul smell, smelling cell, leaning up against the slimy walls as the earth beneath him began to convulse. As he begins to write, he's experiencing being a prisoner yet again, not knowing when his case is going to be heard before Caesar. So how on earth can he write about joy? Let's see if we can uncover this by looking maybe, first of all, at his little greeting that he gives us in the first two verses. Where he simply says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's trying to point out in these first verses anyway that the heart of joy is selflessly serving King Jesus and others for his sake regardless of what the circumstances are. We tend to skip over these first two verses because they're just an introduction. We tend to treat them just like that mail we get that says resident or occupant or valued customer or ministry partner. You know, we just kind of scan over it if we even do that. But remember, during his letter, during his imprisonment, he wrote letters to the churches he founded on his journeys, the churches at Ephesus and Corinth and Colossae and, of course, Philippi. And all his other letters, Paul starts with his credentials as an apostle of Christ Jesus. And he usually includes a statement of why he has the authority to write and why the Ascipians have the duty to listen, but not the letter to the Philippians. Simply, it really wasn't necessary. Because there was a special kinship between Paul and the church at Philippi. Because over the years, they had supported him in many different ways. 
So he writes not as an apostle to members of a church, but as a friend to his co-workers. But even so, verse 1 identifies a little bit of a simmering problem that exists in the church. Notice he begins by identifying himself and Timothy, his helper, on equal footing by not identifying himself as an apostle and by labeling both of them, me and Timothy, as slaves. So even though Paul is the leader and Paul is the one who actually brought Timothy to Christ, he identifies Timothy on equal footing with himself as a fellow slave. The most English translation used the word servant there, but its root refers to a bondservant or to a slave. Of course, slavery at that time was not the same kind of slavery that's affected our country so deeply. But still in all, a slave in the Roman Empire was not a free person. He belonged to the master of a household. And a slave, especially in a town that prided itself on being a mini-Rome, was really held in low esteem. No one in Philippi wants to self-identify as a slave. So I think Paul here is identifying kind of a subtle self-centeredness that shows up in friction between church members who have competing priorities that we're going to see later on. Especially beginning of chapters 2 and 4. And those attitudes jeopardize the unity of the church members at a time when there's external pressures building that are going to take the form of persecution. And these frictions, I think, weigh heavily on Paul's heart as Epaphroditus catches him up on what's going on in Philippi. But Paul and Timothy are not just slaves, but they're slaves of Christ Jesus. And the church needs to see this upside-down truth that these men bear God's authority because Christ has captured them as his slave. Paul and Timothy are living proof that those whom Jesus saves, he enslaves. You're always going to be the master, under the master of somebody. Every, and every master except Jesus will use you and discard you. Just like the slave girl Paul freed from her demonic master, only to be dis- discarded by her exploiters. The Lord delegates authority to his slaves to accomplish his will and to shepherd his people. And more than that, when we get to chapter 2, we're going to see how the Lord himself takes on the role of a slave in his incarnation. So Paul also addresses this letter to the saints, the holy ones, the Christians at Philippi. So they're holy slaves. And he also adds something unusual to the overseers and the deacons as well. Now, overseers is Paul's term for elders. When you look at the book, in the book of uh, Acts, when he addresses the Ephesian elders, he calls them overseers. So he's talking about the elders here, and he's talking about the deacons or the servers. So I think he's trying to tell the church, reminding them, that when you're tempted to dig in and insist on having your own way, that God has put you within this network of authority and accountability for your own good and also for God's glory. You have overseers to help you learn to serve the Lord wholeheartedly and to correct you if necessary. And you have deacons like Stephen in Acts chapter 6 to show you how to care for others with the compassion of Jesus. So learn the joy of being a slave, he's saying, by observing the character of your leaders and responding positively. Don't go running down the road to another church. Stick with your leaders. Stick with the place where you're accountable. And he's also informing the leaders in Philippi, that they, as they exercise their authority under King Jesus, to remember that he and they and Timothy are all slaves of Jesus. And as the Heidelberg Confession states, which we sang this morning serendipitously, 
Our only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. To belong to another, to be captivated by Jesus Christ, is really true liberty, and it's a cause for a deep joy that transcends any of the outward circumstances. Well, that section of that introduction, which you thought was really simple, is followed by, I think, a statement that God finishes what he starts, for which we can be very grateful. Some think that the repeated use of y'all in this section mean, indicates that it's being addressed to southern Macedonia. <laughs> and too bad curls aren't here. They would appreciate that. But. <laughs> but if there's one thing that is clear in these verses, as well as the rest of the book, it's that Paul is a joyful Christian. I mean, his present circumstances look a whole lot less than promising, but he was still jubilant and joyful. So what is it, then, that gives Paul such pleasure when he thinks about the saints that are at Philippi. He says he gives thanks over every memory, at every moment, for every member. He's throwing his arms wide open to bring together brothers and sisters who may not be loving one another as Christ loves them. And when Paul says he remembers these saints, he's telling them that he's remembering them in his prayers. And his prayers, he says, for the Philippians are joyful. So prayer, thanksgiving, and joy all go together in this inseparable bond. So when Paul gives thanks for the partnership of the Philippians in the gospel from the first day until now, he's referring primarily to their fellowship with him by the fact that they came to faith in Jesus. And then this partnership shows up in hospitality and generosity, because both Lydia and the Philippian jailer all ended up inviting Paul and Silas into their homes once they came to faith. And he describes them as one mind serving side by side for the faith of the gospel later on in chapter 1. And two of the women they're going to meet in chapter 4 labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So there's a joyful partnership, a fellowship that existed between Paul and the people there. But you also notice how how Paul thanks God continually for all the believers in Philippi. He needed them, even the irritating ones, and there were some. We're going to read about them a little later on in the letter. Paul loved them all, because he he specifically says, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all. And what does he say he's thankful for? Well, first, for the memories he has, the recollection he has of them. I mean, that prayer meeting out by the riverside where he first met Lydia, who was the means of opening the gospel to that whole city. And then the occasion when they're thrown into prison, and God did such a marvelous miracle of deliverance for them, resulting in the salvation of the Philippian Roman jailer. He's thankful for their participation, for their partnership in the gospel. For this one church, above all others, he singles out as being faithful to preach the gospel even to outsiders in Philippi. And how they sent him help, like Epaphroditus, and they sent him money periodically in his travels. So this association means a lot to him. I was thinking about this, and I consider our church, I'm truly thankful for each of you. I mean, thinking of you all, individually and collectively, brings me great joy. I mean, I thank God for faithful believers who have stayed through past situations which could have derailed our church entirely. 
I thank God that this, God, this church reverses the Pareto principle. We don't have 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. When we have something that we're engaged in, it almost always is 100% participation. I'm thankful for the fact that God has brought young families into this church, even though we can't offer the same problems yet, anyway, as larger churches. I'm thankful for those who work in the nursery, for children's church, for fellow elders, and those who lead us in worship. I'm thankful for your generosity in financially supporting the church. Even last year, when everybody else was in having difficult times, we ended up with a budgetary surplus. That's amazing. That's something to be thankful for. I'm thankful that we all successfully negotiated all the hurdles placed in front of us in 2020, while still remained united in Christ and still loving one another. And I'm thankful for how God uses you to share the gospel with people that he places in your path. Because it's because Paul and his friends have a shared trust in the good news, not relying on themselves, he says, but on Jesus, that Paul loves these folks so extensively and also so intensively. He loves them all, he says. Then he also he says, I hold them in my heart with a strong longing for their spiritual well-being. And then he goes on to that verse that you've already all memorized. Our assurance. He says, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now the good work here is surely that of salvation and not the giving of gifts that Paul had received like some teach. Here was Paul confined to his quarters accused by Jews of treason and accused by some of his brethren of wrongdoing that we're going to see later on in chapter 1. And if Paul were to be found guilty by Caesar and his life was cut short, would this church survive? Could these people manage to get along without him? Would God confirm the work of Paul's hands? And Paul's answer is a resounding and confident yes. First, this wasn't Paul's work. This was God's. It wasn't Paul's church. It was God's. Paul hadn't begun the work in Philippi. God had. God had to take him off his original course and move him over to Europe. From the Macedonian mission in Troas to the meeting with the women by the riverside to the miraculous conversion of the jailer, it was all the work of God. And we can always be sure that God always finishes whatever he starts. And no one was more confident of this than Paul. He lived it. I mean, God initiated the salvation of the people in Philippi and the, and the beginning of the church. God is going to complete his work with or without Paul. So the Philippian security didn't rest with Paul, didn't rest with Epaphroditus, didn't rest with the overseers and the deacons. It rests with God. So whatever happens to Paul, whatever happens to anything else in Philippi, the fate of the Philippians was not at risk. That gave Paul great joy. Another part of this joy that Paul sees in these people at Philippi was that he was seeing them not as they are, but as they would be when God's work was done. He was looking at them with the eye of faith. I mean, he was sure that the God who began a good work in them, individually and collectively, was going to finish it. And he could say, even though you rub me the wrong way sometimes, I know what you're going to end up like. I know where you're going to end up. Sometimes it's difficult, but when we think about other people and what they will be as Christians, sometimes we can get along with people who we normally find unattractive or difficult. So here's a little self-test for you. What is it that really gives you joy? 
And then think, is, is this joy self-centered or is it people-centered? Do you take joy in serving others? Even if it means sacrificing some of your time and resources? Do you really rejoice when other people prosper in their faith? Or are you jealous of their success? What gives us pleasure tells us a great deal about ourselves. Paul found pleasure in giving his life and ministering the gospel to others, and he saw the same thing in the people at Philippi. Because we're all, if we know Christ, we're in the hands of the one, the only one who can really change us. I mean, sometimes we don't want to be what we know God wants us to be, but God can even change our want-tos. God knows how to bring us into circumstances that will make us willing to be made willing, if he needs to which is a great consolation to recognize in whose hands we really are. And sometimes he uses painful circumstances to change us. Not just sometimes. Actually, that's his usual way. Ask Paul. I found this quote from a long time ago from a man named Jerry Bridges who wrote a book, uh, Trusting God, one of the books that he wrote, where he said, For the believer, all pain has meaning. All adversity is profitable. There is no question that adversity is difficult. It usually takes us by surprise and seems to strike where we're most vulnerable. To us, it often appears completely senseless and irrational. But to God, none of it's either senseless or irrational. He has the purpose in every pain he brings or allows into our lives. We can be sure that in some way, he intends it for our profit and his glory. Which go together. So Paul reminds him that you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So just as he's imprisoned for the defense of the gospel, so too he's saying they must live in a way that's worthy of the gospel and to contend for it side by side with Paul, even though they're in Philippi and he's in Rome. Because there's Roman opposition that's rearing its ugly head in Philippi. And the hostility comes from the empire itself, of which they are both citizens, both of whom are in trouble because they hold allegiance to a citizenship where the Lord Jesus is king even over Lord Caesar. On the one hand, the empire assists them by keeping barbarians away and providing relative ease of travel and, somewhat, and some safety. But that comes at a price when the issue of ultimate citizenship rears its ugly head. Will they, I guess will we, be satisfied with bread and circuses, with security, in exchange for freedom to serve our Lord Jesus Christ? I don't think that question has ever been more important than it is now. What are we willing to sacrifice for comfort? Well, Paul has expressed his gratitude for the Philippians in partnering with him for the furtherance of the gospel. He's also expressed his affection for them as well. He says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. That's a lot of affection. And his thanksgiving for them takes place in the context of prayer, as he reminded them back in verse 4. Now he's going to give content to that prayer. He's going to indicate some of these particular things that he's asking the, the God for on behalf of the Philippians as he prays that God will bring them to completion on the day of Christ. So here's, here's his prayer in verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, 
so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He packed a whole lot in three verses. Uh, I'm going to try to unpack it a little bit, but I'm only going to scratch the surface. Once again, the proof is left to the student. But Paul does request that they would grow in love and then in knowledge and then a godly life. And there's several different ways we could analyze this. If you look at commentaries, you find all kinds of different ways of looking at this. But just keep in mind as we look at these verses that each part relates to one of these three themes. Love, true knowledge, and godliness. They're all tied to that, those three themes. And my prayer for you as I look at this is that you ask yourself three things. What ought I to be desiring myself because of what Paul prays here? What I ought to be rejoicing in when I consider my brothers and sisters in Christ because of what Paul prays here? And what I ought to be praying for for my brothers and sisters in Christ because of what Paul prays here? Well, the first request in Paul's prayer is simply this, that your love may abound more and more. Now, he just made it crystal clear that this is a loving congregation, and it's easy for him to love because they share so much. They share the same goal, making Christ known. And yet the very first prayer for them is what? That they should abound all the more in love. And if the Philippians needed Paul to pray for them to grow in love, we're probably in the same boat. We probably need the same help. Because where there is a true knowledge of Christ, where there is an appreciation of the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ, he says there's always love. The Apostle John says, we love because he first loved us. Or John also restated Jesus' teaching that no man can say that he loves God who does not love his brother. So if you've really known God's radical life-transforming love, you're going to manifest something of that love in your life when it comes to your relationship with others. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. What kind of knowledge? Well, knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of God. At a personal level. Not just knowledge about God, but actually knowledge of him. Because he's concerned for the Philippians and also for us to increase... It's true, for our case, our true uh, practical, character-transforming, biblical knowledge of God. We need to grow in understanding of who he is, hence Wednesday nights. But isn't it refreshing how the Apostle Paul puts love and knowledge side by side? He doesn't see them in competition or in opposition to each other. In fact, he's going to make it really clear that there could be no real love without true knowledge. And there can be no true knowledge, he says, without love. The two go together in his mind. So here's the Apostle Paul praying for abounding love and growing knowledge and knowing that they go together, which is really important. Because we come from a tradition of Christians that care a whole lot about truth, and rightly so. But the more we know about truth, the more we ought to manifest that truth in Christian love. There's often this tightrope we have to walk between truth and love, and we tend to compensate one side or the other rather than trying to walk, maintain the balance. 
I mean, how countercultural it would it be in our world today, where most people think that in order to show love, you have to joyously believe something you know isn't true. That's how love is defined today. Otherwise, you're a racist or some kind of a phobe and you need to be canceled. You must joyously affirm things you know aren't true or aren't logical if you're going to be part of the in crowd. But the Apostle Paul is saying, no, gospel love is evident only where real truth is embraced about God. That's how real love comes into play. And of course, he follows that immediately by going on into verse 9 for discernment. How do we know the difference? You can know the knowledge of the truth. You need to know how to wield that truth in good judgment and discernment. So he goes on to say that you would abound in love more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. You need to be able to know how to use that knowledge. Have you ever known a parent that had a really smart child? You all did, I know. But, uh, the child's in college or maybe launching a business career or some other path to success. And that parent is concerned because that really gifted, really smart, really intelligent young person is making the goofiest, most foolish choices you can imagine. And the parent is concerned, of course, because they don't want your children just to be smart. You want them to use discretion. You want them to have good judgment. You want them to be wise in discernment. Which is exactly what the Apostle Paul is praying for the Philippians and for you and me. Not that we would just know stuff, but we would have judgment and discretion and wisdom as we apply the truth to our life situations. So in verse 10, he goes on to say that knowledge and discernment are going to show up in what you choose. He's praying that we would abound in love, grow in knowledge, increase in discernment, and choose the excellent as opposed to that which is bad or that which is corrupt. He's asking God to enable us to be able to choose that which is eternal as opposed to that which is ephemeral or fleeting, temporal and passing. To choose God over any substitutes that the world around us might offer. And he says, well, this in turn then leads to behavior change. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. He wants our outward behavior and attitudes to match our inward character as being molded by the Holy Spirit. Remember in Ephesians, his term was putting off the old and putting on the new. Putting off your old manner of life and put on the new, which is being worked out from the inside by the Lord Jesus through the Spirit. He's saying you must not live a life of hypocrisy. We don't live lies. And one of the greatest compliments I ever heard given to another uh, Christian was that he was the same person at home as he was in the office. No difference between the two. Which is an evidence of divine work, work of grace in that person. And the Apostle Paul had seen that in the Philippians. And so he prays that they would continue in sincerity and in integrity. Then he follows that with praying that they would live in fruitful righteousness. In verse 11, he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. So he's praying for the production of fruit in the life of the Christian. That the result of the Spirit's work of grace in their heart would be that they would bear much fruit for God through Jesus Christ. Fruit that comes in the form of changed character, as we saw in Galatians 5.22, where the fruit of the Spirit is 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are character traits. So the fruit of the Spirit needs to show up there. But he's also saying that fruit needs to take place in the form of people with changed lives to the gospel taking root because of our ministry, because of our sharing the Lord with other people. That's also a fruit. And finally, he prays that they would live for God. They would live unto God. They would live before God. They would live for the glory of God in verse 11. It closes with their, this, his overall purpose for living to the glory and praise of God. That's the ultimate purpose. To show God as he really is, and as a result, then to bring praise to him. We're to function as uh, John Piper said many times, we're to function like a telescope, not a microscope. We're to magnify God and therefore bring him glory. So as Paul praises for the Philippians, our hearts ought to be saying, Lord, I want to be like that. That's what I want to be like. Like this. Love abounding, knowledge growing, discernment increasing, choosing the excellent, being people of integrity, living a life of fruitful righteousness. Deliberately, on purpose, live to see God glorified in all that you do. So our hearts ought to be really saying in response to that same prayer that Paul has here, I want to be like that. That's where I want to be. Which brings us back to, how'd you do on the three questions? So as we look at this prayer, we ought to be saying to ourselves, what are the things that really encourage me, the things that interest me as I look at another person? What are the things that really catch my attention? Is it that person's success, um, social connections, looks, um, possessions? Or do we see things that ought to attract our attention and actually cause us to rejoice, like love being manifested, increasing the knowledge of the truth, seeing discernment, choosing the excellent, being fruitful in righteousness, living for the glory of God? All these things come, how do they come? Through Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can build a person like that. And we're all under construction. Hopefully it will finish before some of our remodeling projects some of you got going on. But, <clears throat> but only, only Jesus built a person like this. And following Paul's example, these are the things we need to be praying for each other. I mean, if Paul is praying this for his fellow Christians in Philippi, surely we at Grace Fellowship need to be praying this prayer for one another that we would abound in love, that we would grow in knowledge, that we would increase in discernment on how to apply that knowledge, that we would choose the excellent over the transitory, that we would continue in integrity and sincerity, no hypocrisy. We would live in fruitful righteousness and we would live for the glory of God. May God make it so. Let's pray. I thank you, Father, for Paul's prayer here. I thank you that it's obvious his love for these people has spilled out in how he keeps them in mind. Every time that he thinks of them, every time he's in prayer, their name comes to mind and he prays for them. 
Ah, that might be true for us too, Father, when we think about one another. And then we might actually pray for one another the same thing that he's asking would happen in the lives of the Philippians. So, Father, help us to uh, maybe utilize this prayer maybe for uh, a paradigm even as to how we ought to pray for one another within our own family, uh, within our church, within our community, any brothers and sisters that we know. This is the prayer that Paul says that we ought to consider praying and consider these requests as being really important. So, Father, help us this morning to see how we can put this into practice, how we can actually live a life that ends up glorifying you and results in praise to you as our ultimate goal. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.